Welcome to Fretknot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fretknot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions in our field about the lessons that have defined their careers and help us to work out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realize that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, the inventor of the nylon string, a company with a real heart and my string of choice. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to Siad Wells, guitarist, teacher, musically cogitating podcast host and activist. Born in Tennessee, her passion for music started when she was only young, when she got involved with a choir in her local area. She went on to study music education, classical guitar performance and applied string pedagogy and is currently working on her doctorate at the University of Georgia. Her advocacy and work with youth groups has made a difference in many young musicians' lives, having acted as an essential member in many programmes and projects promoting diversity and positive change. Of her outreach and project leadership work, she says, It's my mission to use the impact of music, old and new, to manifest moments of meaningful change and to inspire community. Siad, thank you so much for coming on. What is a lesson that has been the most meaningful to you? So uh, there's this show on Netflix called Chef's Table, and each episode explores one chef and their life and their work. And I think that there is this inexplainable link between people who like music and people who like food. And I, I feel like most musicians are like pretty good cooks uh, or at least enjoy food and cooking. So so anyway, the very first episode is this woman who owns a restaurant in somewhere in California, like in Southern California, and they do an Asian style cuisine, I believe Japanese, but she talks about how they kind of run their restaurant and it's a really small setting. Only like 15 or 20 people are allowed to dine there every day. And they have a book of everyone that has ever eaten at that restaurant. They write down everyone's names and they take like really good care. And they think that everyone is like really special and they treat everyone as such and they want it to really be an experience. And so from that, I think I learned that after a concert, I have to, to care about the people who came to, to watch me and that I should be happy or at least pretend to be happy. And I should try to remember their names and that I should, I should try to care for them because you know, basically they just sat at my table and ate my music. And so like, that's, that's meaningful. And they, they might not have heard that I messed up or or they might have heard that I messed up and that's okay too. But you know, that I, I just have to care about them and what, what it is that music means to them. I've spent so much time thinking about this the last couple of days about how, in 
we'll just keep it with classical guitar that I don't think that we want to ever acknowledge that music is entertainment and that we are there to entertain in the same way that or, or, or in a similar way to you know I don't know Ed Sheeran or John Mayer or Beyonce like they're entertaining to watch mm-hmm. and just in in the same way that an orchestra is when like all the tips of the bows are just like moving up and down it's like oh Mm-hmm. you know like that's entertaining and it's it's meaningful they're they're all like really meaningful artistic experiences and I I don't know what classical guitarists think that that like what do we think we do but a lot of people I I'm I'm willing to bet a lot of people would say they're not entertainers mm, entertainment is an absolutely fascinating topic when it comes to classical music um and I think within that realm, it's interesting to think, I mean, it's it's no mystery why the problems within the Roman Catholic Church and the classical music world are so similar. That kind of culture of working for or in service of a higher power, mm. having this one purpose that's largely undefined and sustaining it all through these sort of completely unbalanced hierarchies that use guilt as the fuel to guide their followers. Um there's something about those power systems that's just uncannily similar and it's this idea I think in my mind I think of it as a neglect of the idea that what we're doing is by people and for people oh right yeah Um, yeah yeah I suppose in a way it's it's actually obvious because it's the same archaic power structures that are guided by the same elusive mysterious all judging power that you can never take charge of um But yeah, I think a lot of students in music schools actually don't enjoy practicing. I think um, a lot are sort of guilt-tripped into practice uh, by the threat of a judgment day of sorts, even though it's it's something that's never explicitly talked about. And then even into later life, you get these weird outbursts of really not being able to enjoy what you do at all, having so many musicians suffering with... And really not being able to redeem Mm. any of the reward of having worked so hard because they're either too tired and run down or just Mm -hmm. completely oriented around criticism. Um, I feel like the only person who's really living the experience of that, you know, you're so lucky you love what you do culture is Andrew York. (laughs) He's just (laughs) somewhere with his tea cozy hat and his bare feet. Um, I have to say, I feel like as soon as a musician gets their shoes off on stage, that's when they really start to hit that liberation. You know, it's like, if I can show you my gnarly toes, I can play a note rock. (laughs) You know what I found really interesting having these conversations is that the lesson that people signify as the most meaningful always tends to be something that they've discovered in their behavior either through some sort of lightning bolt moment of realization or through a sort of slow release realization that something has to change. Um, How has your attitude towards performance changed over time? Did you always enjoy it or did you find yourself uh, not enjoying that process? I don't, I don't have like a, a moment in time where I've like can remember feeling that way, but yeah, I definitely used to to play and not want to talk to the people afterwards <laughs> or, you know, or say the same thing kind of like Hannah would say. It's like, no, that was terrible. I'm not good enough. Why am I here? You know, like that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of that does come from music school. I think 
musical is a really dramatic experience for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I don't know many people who have come out of that experience uh, unscathed or without some sort of something they have to kind of work mm-hmm. through. And sure, there is no guarantee that music school or at any point in, in life that you will not go through an experience like that. But it almost feels like it's designed to be that way. And 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 that these kind of um, traumatic experiences don't just happen. Definitely. I think the word you use there, designed, is really telling. Um, and something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, a few years ago in England, there was this inquiry into the child protection practices of independent music schools. Um, and they were sort of trying to build a picture of why sexual abuse is so common in the structures of independent schools and they were trying to determine whether it was something to do with the nature of it being art schools or because they were boarding schools and I think ultimately it was a little bit of both Um, but so it was sort of built up of hearings with lots of speakers, teachers, pastoral care staff and even students who had been in those structures who'd experienced sexual abuse And at the end of each hearing, they would give the speaker a chance to share some of their thoughts, a little chance to be heard. Um, And I'm saying this Mm -hmm. because one person that I thought was really, really on the money with this, um, but I can't attribute it to somebody because um, that hearing happened to be anonymous. Um, They said that musical education as it stands now doesn't offer education, it only offers simulation. And I thought that was really interesting and it really hits on yeah. that that feeling of why so many people feel undervalued <sighs> and underappreciated even after going through a system that seems to pay so much attention to them. Um, so let's say you play violin, maybe you're you know always in the back desk of the orchestra and you never get that chance to learn how to be a violinist that plays at the front desk or that learns how to lead. Um, And that's because music school and I think all Mm -hmm. artistic schools, um, they're also performance and achievement based. And maybe it doesn't sound like a big thing to an outsider, but over time, the message that that gives to a child is, you know, you're not good enough. And then that's where people can take advantage. Um, I actually think that that is an especially powerful force with young guitarists and it's something that's often overlooked because we're a little bit outside of the mainstream classical music world Um, but actually by the nature of us being a smaller body of students I think there's a lot of pressure put on young guitarists because their teachers feel that they need to keep up with the other instruments you know so we feel like we're behind. Yeah I mean 1000% what you just said Mm. And teachers make it known that they feel like their students are behind. And that doesn't help. Mm. It's like, it's my first day. How am I behind? <laughs> I know, exactly. You've only just arrived, but you're late. <laughs> exactly. Right. Mm. It's like, I thought this was supposed to be a place where we we all started like, you know, kind of fresh. And what it really is, is like, no, you're just kind of continuing and, and starting from from where you were. And I think classical guitar's problem like you said, is this trying to measure up to all of the rest of the the instruments and trying to be as good and trying to feel as worthy of money or or whatever, whatever, instead of just like focusing on what it is that we do best. 
I think we would probably get a lot farther. Mm, definitely. I think for me, something that I just constantly think and I constantly keep saying as well, it's just, it's so important to define what you really want out of your success. So how are you measuring that success? And when we say that we want to be as good as other string players, it just doesn't mean anything. And teachers often have a set of sort of secret goals for your secret success measurements that they don't share with the student and I think that generally just opening up that conversation really involving the student in the process of their learning which actually it should be normal to do that um, I think that that can really help because it also gives students a lot more power in the trajectory of their learning process um, which is ultimately the most important thing And um, I think it's interesting what you say, this idea of being so behind, because um, that feeling of catching up is actually something that I think most musicians feel. I think that that's something that's really uh, interlinked with imposter syndrome. I definitely remember being at school and having just started guitar and already feeling like I had so much to catch up on. And I think it's important that we teach our students and um, that we talk in a way in the guitar community that, that has more of a growth mindset because it's such a fixed mindset to think that you're behind, that you're never going to catch up. Actually, I think it's very common with, with many of us, we look back and think, I can't believe I thought I was behind. If only I'd realized what I already had and I'd put that energy into learning instead of into feeling bad, then I could be so much further now, which is sort of just perpetuated. That means exactly the same feeling. <laughs> you know, now we both feel behind. But, you know, I think looking back, I think that's definitely something that teachers could have done at the time try and foster that growth mindset so that you mm -hmm. can actually use the time in your life to get further mm -hmm. Siad what is a lesson that you would like to impart oh okay this is this might be a little bit of a rogue answer <laughs> to this question um but I think a lesson that I want to impart is that your teacher doesn't know everything so maybe don't listen to everything they say and uh, to try to like do your own thing is like that's that's a lesson that I hope that I teach my students is like I'm I'm not uh, someone who knows everything and that you should have as many questions for me as I do for you mm. and that I, I hope that through our time working together that they feel like I've empowered them to be on their own as a musician And so that they don't have that separation anxiety that you get coming out of music school, because that's a thing. Mm. And I think it takes a long time to get over. And I don't think it has to, to be a mm. thing. In my experience, teachers don't do enough to prepare their students to, to be on their own. Mm. They prepare their students to come back and take another semester of lessons, which is what people need because we all need to eat and I, I totally understand that because we live in a society that where you have to work and to, to live and you need to maintain you know a certain number of students to you know support your lifestyle but just holding on to students is like not the right thing to do mm. it is a tricky one um and I think 
well, if I look back at my own life, I don't really remember having many lessons when I was young that made me feel like I could go into the practice room and that I could take charge of what I was doing with music. Um, it's interesting, I was talking to a personal trainer recently, a friend of mine, and she said, you know, you should be able to teach people everything that you know in around two years as a personal trainer. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, not really fit or they're not really strong or they haven't lost a lot of weight or whatever their goals are. But, um, you know, they go through the motions together of practicing and getting the form right. But in terms of learning, there's not much more she can do after two years. They've you know, acquired the knowledge that you've condensed from your whole life into those two years. And you know, then they need to go out into the world, stop looking for somebody else's feedback and start listening to their own bodies. And for her, two years is really the deadline. And I think in music, when we don't have getting the student to where they can be independent in mind, we really risk running into the problem of students leaving education and suddenly feeling betrayed by not only their lack of ability to make a decision or make what they feel are good decisions or even know what a good decision is, but also feeling betrayed by that relationship with their teacher. Um, the realisation and the fear of that, it, it's keeping a lot of teachers in business, I think. Um, but the current barrier to entry for teaching is incredibly low. I personally don't think education systems do enough to hire good pedagogues I mean, we all know that just being famous doesn't make you a good teacher, but you know, somehow there are so many people who are teaching in big academies who who really are just you know, prolific players. Um, honestly, going through all of the loopholes of teacher's degrees doesn't do it either. It doesn't make you a, a pedagogue. It just feels at the moment that having a good teacher is very luck-based, and that really is partially due to the fact that there's barely any hiring criteria aside from the weight of a player's name i i i totally agree that the barrier to entry is low and i think that we think that if you're a good player that makes you a good teacher and that if you're a good teacher that makes you a good player and then there are some like great teachers out there who maybe aren't the best players but we we really like talk badly about those people mm. and that's not really mm. fair and I think it's I don't like to I think this is a little bit of like a ugh, opinion mm. <laughs> um but I don't really like to value a teacher based on what they produced mm. I just like to value them on my experience with them yeah because that could just be a fluke. <laughs> I don't know. Like, like I know that there are like some teachers out there who have produced like all these students. And sometimes like you can tell that they produce all these students because they all kind of sound the same and they're not really musical or artistic in, in my mm. view anyway. Um, but yeah, I think the way that we value teachers, good and bad is like, is very strange. Oh yeah, it's definitely very strange. Although I have to say that I do think that the way that we value musicians these days is is very strange as well. Um, the things that we require in performing artists or in creators, it's very strange. And um, you know, classical guitar is is perfect to see the manifestation of this weird cancel culture we have in classical music. 
because we have so many famous examples. I mean, the sort of the legendary Segovia lesson with Michael Chapdelaine is a really good example of that. How can someone's career be completely obliterated over a few different fingerings? Um, I don't know if you see that in other instruments in the classical world. And, you know, obviously more far-reaching things, different editions, whether you play from the manuscript, what counts as the original score, um, how can you stay faithful to the composer's intentions? Should you stay faithful to the composer's intentions? Um, I've definitely fallen out with people in the past over F natural versus an F sharp. Or, I mean, it's just crazy the things you find yourself caught up in. So I think we just generally live in quite a strange time. Um, but I think we live in a strange time in general too, not just in classical guitar. And it's definitely something that I don't want to let you leave without talking about. Um, obviously cancel culture spans much much further than just the classical guitar world you do an amazing amount of work in diversity and representation and especially in the classical music and classical guitar world and I want to ask you do you think that in a world as rigid as ours is there the possibility for making positive change and if so then what can we do to make small steps towards that we like we can make change and it's totally possible, but it does take a lot of people working towards a common goal. And I think there has to be like a, a vision that is well communicated, mm. which I, which is kind of the problem with a lot of social, like a lot of social movements. I think we say, that, Oh, we want to, we're fighting for justice. And it's like, well, that means something different to everyone. So like, what does that really mean? Mm. And, what does that look like for me and for you and, I don't know, for my cat or something like? Mm, I think that's a really important perspective to look at it from because I think when we talk about diversity, it feels anyway, I mean, we have this problem anyway in the classical music world or in any artistic field, I think, that people really treat it like a zero-sum game. So I talk about this all the time on this podcast, but I mean, if, if you win, I lose, that sort of feeling. Um, and I think when we talk about diversity and representation, the thing that people worry about is, am I going to be out of a job at the end of this? I think that's generally the thing that holds people back and lets people be fearful because I think there's a lot of fear when we talk about diversity and offering opportunities to people who otherwise wouldn't have them. But at least for me, it's been really unclear where that fear comes from, um, and I think thinking of it like that, you know, how can we create a picture where we're all present, um, all of our favorite people are there, how we can fuse our different cultures, how we can fuse the things that we love about the places that we're from, how can we make the world better by making sure that there's space for everybody. I think one of the things that people do struggle with is knowing where to start and it is difficult I would say to have these conversations mainly because I think most people don't really want to offend somebody so I do find myself for instance picking my words a lot more wisely I try and pick my words you know thinking a lot more about how to phrase things now that we're having this conversation um, and I, I wonder where are the places that we can start because you know we talk about attainable goals a lot in classical music and when we're making visions for what we want to see in the world I think we kind of lose sight of that. 
I always think that the first place for us to start is to acknowledge that there is an issue and that we are responsible for changing it and for for making it better. And I see a lot of this happening in like climate justice and climate change books and in groups where the conversation is often, you know, we have to change it so that our children are having somewhere to go play. And it's like, yeah, but also we have to change it now so that, you know, people living in sub-Saharan Africa don't have to leave because it's just too hot. <laughs> like we, we have to make change now. And, and, and kind of bringing that back to music, I think we have to realize like, what is that change going to to look like as well? Because for me, diversity and inclusion looks like a lot of things. It looks like going to a concert and there's a black woman on stage. It looks like looking at the program and there are pieces by black and Latinx composers and LGBTQ composers. And it might also look like having a, a black guitar teacher at a university. It could look like all of these different things. And that's just me. I'm just one person. So I think figuring out like what it can look like for our community and, and how can we work towards that uh, all together while still kind of understanding and recognizing what people need in the meantime is is really where I start. Mm. Siad, what is a lesson you are currently working on? I think I'm still working on the trying to be independent mm -hmm. <laughs> for myself. You know, it, it's like I'm trying I'm trying to work on being able to do a piece that is really hard mm -hmm. <laughs> by myself and not feeling like I need to latch on to someone to guide me through it. And in that same way, I'm working on just kind of realizing that, hey, this is not gonna be that fast. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Fret Not. If you want to check out anything else that Siad's up to, including the links to her podcast, the links to the resources about diversity in the guitar community, you can check out her website, which is siadwells.com. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed having this conversation, then you can always leave a rating and review, and you can subscribe to be the first to hear each new episode as soon as it's uploaded. Join me in two weeks' time, where I'll be speaking to one of my childhood heroes, the legend that is, Brian May, guitarist from Queen.